Well, Happy New Year. It's good to be here, isn't it? Tell you what, I can't think of a place I'd rather be, maybe, other than the beach. No, I'm just kidding. Me. This is good. Lord's good. It's good to be here. I always love this time of year. Uh, it's a time of new beginnings, new opportunities. It's another chance to try something again. Yeah, how many of y'all have actually made New Year's resolutions this year that were the same resolution you made last year, but you didn't make it? You did yeah, a lot of us. Okay, we're being honest. There you go. So, so that's true. So it's good to try something new again. <laughs> uh, it's, it's time to trade in old ways of doing things for something new. Um, you know, such as uh, maybe a, a new car, a new vehicle. Anybody got new cars this year? There we go. A couple. Got a teenager raising her hand. Yeah, that's not true. You didn't get one. Okay. And uh, uh, trade in uh, maybe a few pounds. Anybody want to trade in a few pounds uh, for doing that? Uh, maybe a new time to try some new clothes. Anybody wearing new clothes that they got for Christmas? Got a few. Yeah, a few. Now, if you're having trouble fitting into the new clothes, revert back to the last thing I said about losing a trading in a few pounds. Uh, that'll help you with that. Uh, that's good. Uh, last year, I traded in my old 80s hairstyle for this. Um, yeah, some people say, some people say some trades aren't that good. I, and other people just call this a midlife crisis. So, uh, there we go. Uh, no, not all trades are good ones. So, uh, if you're a Red Sox fan, you could, uh, you weren't alive then, but you'd probably go back and think it was probably not a good trade for the Red Sox to trade away Babe Ruth to the Yankees. You know, that trade did not work out real well for them. It's just, uh, um, it's just one of those bad things that happened. So, you know, how, how do you define a good trade? What is, you know, when we talk about trading in old things or starting new stuff or getting something different, how do you define a good trade? Well, it would be is when what you get is better than what you give up. That would be a good trade, right? What you get is better than what you actually give up. I got a short video I want to show you on the subject of being a trader because I'm going to encourage us to do that. Let's, let's see the video. That was me doing all the drawing. Y'all believe that? <laughs> now, I tell you what, uh, there's a good sermon right there. Two minutes, we're done. And uh, that gives us a lot to think about. Uh, I certainly agree with what it's saying in the sense that our American dream has been hijacked and it has been or become something that's about me, me, me. What's in it for me? How can I get more? How can I have more possessions? How can I have better homes? How can I have uh, better, more prestige? How can I have all these different things? And we're just bombarded with this message. Then it comes at us all the time. Well, I want to take a look at Paul. And if you'll open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, while you're turning down, that's on page 1,564 in my Bible, if that helps you some. I don't know if it will or not. But um, anyway, Ephesians chapter 3, and I want to um, suggest to you that Paul was a trader also, and that he traded his life for uh, at least three things that we'll talk about today. I'm sure there were far more than that, but at least three of those things. And again, Ephesians chapter 3, and I want to read the first few verses there if we can. It says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of this stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, again for today and for your word. 
Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to study it. God, we pray that it takes root into our life and that it changes us forever. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Here Paul is writing in somewhat an autobiographical way in the sense that uh, he's describing some things that has happened to him uh, along the path. Now, he's not going into a lot of detail, but, uh, you know, when you think of Paul as a character, he's a guy who had it all. He was, he was well-educated. He was well-positioned in society. He, he had power. He had influence. He had money. He was successful by all, the stand, or all, by all worldly standards. And then he had a life-changing experience. On the road to Damascus, something happened to him that radically changed his life. And so now, many years later, he's writing this. In fact, he's writing it from prison. He's writing it in a sense of he, he's suffering hardship, but he says these things. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, Jesus, for the, for the sake of you Gentiles. He starts off by saying that. I, Paul, the prisoner of who? Of Christ. I want to suggest to you that the first thing that Paul traded his life for was Christ. He lived under the lordship of Christ no matter what the circumstances were. Here, he says he's a prisoner of Christ when actually, technically, he was probably a prisoner of Nero. Uh, you know, but, but in his mind, it was because of his faith. It was because he was living out the Christ life in such a way that, drew, that made him stand out that he was imprisoned. And so he wrote these things. In fact, another one of the passages that I really like, and you don't need to change uh, flip there, but in Philippians 121, uh, certainly a passage that many of you know, it says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's Paul saying this. And so he traded his life. He traded all that the world had for him, even though he was well positioned in this situation for Christ no matter what the circumstances may be. One commentator in writing about that, that passage in Philippians 1.21 described Paul as a Christ-intoxicated man. A Christ-intoxicated man. And I love this description. In fact, um, when, I, when I'd read and studied that uh, some months ago, that term has really haunted me over the last, uh, over the last few weeks. Because I want to understand what it would really mean to be Christ intoxicated. So let's first just take a moment just to say, what, what does that mean anyway, being intoxicated? Well, I'm sure as many of you were out last night and drive around, you probably witnessed or saw some people that were intoxicated. New Year's Eve, that's the, you know, that's when they party. We see police officers, everybody just waiting for that person to come and drive by in the wrong way and to stop them. And so, uh, you know, it, it, it is certainly a situation that our society promotes and even encourages intoxication. In this case, we're talking about being intoxicated by alcohol. And what does it mean to be intoxicated? Well, I think it means that we are consumed. I think it means that we are under the influence, that it affects our, our thinking, it affects our speech, it affects our actions, it affects our sense of balance, it affects our eyesight, the way we see things, it affects a good deal of our life. 
And of course, that's alcohol. But then it brings us to a different question, maybe a little bit of a broader scope. And it would be, what is our world intoxicated with? And when I asked that question in the first service, somebody shouted out sin. And I said, yes, you're right. We are in all aspects of things. We're, we're, our world is intoxicated with sin. But to be a little bit more specific, we can talk about some of that. Uh, you can be intoxicated with cocaine, with stimulants, with opiates. Did you know you could be intoxicated with water? You can be water intoxicated. Now, it's the truth. It goes on. How about some things like this? Um, you can be intoxicated with gambling. It can consume you. It can control you. With work. Even a good thing in life can become something that's intoxicating to you. We can become intoxicated with food. Good or bad, by the way. But we can be intoxicated with it. Uh, computers. Just consumed by, by what you can get, by information, by what, what, what those things can be. Did you know that you can find support groups for things like Shopaholics Anonymous? Yeah. I mean, we can be intoxicated with material possessions, with the need for, to have more and to have it now. The rush of just getting the newness. You can uh, find a support group for Kleptomaniac. Maniacs Anonymous. So if you don't have the money to buy it, just go steal it. But it can be certainly intoxicating. Uh, you can find a support group for sex addicts. They're all over the place. In fact, just to belabor that point just for a moment, did you know that there are 65 million people living today in the United States that have a sexually transmitted disease? 65 million. It's about one in four, by the way, if y'all want to do some math. That's, that's kind of a scary thing. Did you know there are about 15 million new cases each year? And worldwide, it's estimated that there are more than a million new cases of sexually transmitted disease every day. Our world is intoxicated with sex. Let me ask you this. Does your relationship with Christ consistently, moment by moment, affect the way you think? Does it change the way you think? How about the way you talk? Is, is your relationship with Christ, have you been in a position like Paul where you've traded away the old life and become new? 2 Corinthians 5.17 was on, on the screen just a little while ago. It said, it said, for anyone who is in Christ is what? A new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things have become new. Does your relationship with Christ in the same way that intoxication changes the way you think, does it change the way you talk? Does it change the way you think? Does it change the way or affect the way that you uh, act, the way you behave? Does it change the way you view people around you? You know, one, I think, the saddest commentaries that I, that I hear, and I hear it often, and guess what? I hear it in the church is, you know, a tiger never changes its stripes or a cheetah never loses its spots. Have you said that before? It's not true. Paul was radically changed by Christ. At age 14, I was radically changed. I am not the same person that I was before I met Christ. We should view people, and our relationship with Christ should be of that which causes us to view people in a way that says, 
Christ can change them. Are we Christ-intoxicated people? Does it give you a sense of balance? Are you stable in what you believe and how you live your life? Or, or are you waffling? Are you straddling the fence? Are you going back and forth? Are you Christ-intoxicated? I was watching a video some months ago, and I was challenged by that to write an honest prayer. I actually did this with the Sunday school class that I teach and asked them to, uh, to write an honest prayer to God. I don't know how many of them did it. They probably thought the same way I did and saying that, you know what, I pray and I don't want to do that. And even though we say nobody's going to read it, nobody's going to do it, you know, I, you know that, that challenge was there to, to write an honest prayer to God. And so we went on, and I ended up not doing it myself, even though I was challenging other people to do it. Uh, uh, you know, it was just another thing to do. And I don't know, but this ideal of being Christ-intoxicated continued to get a hold of me, and it compelled me to do me. So uh, I wrote what I consider to be an honest prayer with God. I, I want to share that with you, if I can. Dear Lord, please help Alabama win its 14th national championship. Oh, wait a minute. Wait. That's just first draft. I'm sorry. That didn't work. It was an honest prayer, though, wasn't it? <laughs> no, no. Here's what I wrote. Lord, here I am again, and I'm not sure what to say, because it seems that I keep saying the same things over and over again. And I grow weary of confessing the same sins. And my, my sins have hurt others and not just me. Where's the victory? Where's the confidence that I'll be different this time? I've been living in Laodicea. I have become very religious through the years, but in truth... My heart has become lukewarm. I have traded in the world for the ministry. It's a good life, but it's easy to get wrapped up in, and I find myself very dry and sometimes hard. And Lord, I am tired. I don't know how to be a godly husband or a godly father. And I am full of questions. How do I raise children in this world today? How do I even pray for my family? Lord, where's your power in my life? There was a time when your power was so tangible in my life, but things seem to be so complicated now. Lord, I need your presence, I need your power, and I need your direction. I need your love in my life. So help me, Lord, to shake the dryness of my soul and use your plow of the Holy Spirit to go deep into the fresh and fertile soil of my heart. A Christ-intoxicated life. That prayer was extremely uncomfortable to write. 
It's still extremely uncomfortable for me to revisit and to look at. But if my life is going to be a reflection of Christ, if my life is going to be that where the world sees me, that they see Christ, there has to be authenticity between me and my relationship with Him. And all too often our prayers just aren't really that, are they? In the book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, it says that we can become unconvinced, unpersuaded travel agents handing out brochures to places that we have never been. You know what that really means? It just simply says this. You know, if we're going on a trip, we're going on a vacation, we're looking to go somewhere and we call up a travel agent and we're looking at them and we're saying, hey, I need to know about this place. And they can say, I've never been there, but I do have this brochure and I can give you this brochure. It's got lots of nice pictures. It's got a lot of nice things. That's one thing. But boy, if I go to that agent and I say, look, I'm thinking about going to this place and their eyes light up and say, I've been there. Let me tell you about my trip. Let me tell you about my experience. Let me tell you what it means to go there. Well, with a Christ-intoxicated life, we can say that the gospel has changed our life. And this is a place that I've been, Calvary. And I can share that with you. Because of my experience. I'm not just handing you a brochure. I'm not just handing you a tract. I'm not just handing you a story of what it could be for you with not experiencing it myself. But for me to be able to do that, my life has to be marked by Him affecting the way I think, by Him affecting the way I speak. By Him affecting the way I view others. By Him affecting the way I choose to act. It's got to be everything. So Paul traded his life for Christ. I think it was a good trade, by the way. I think he got more than what he had to give up. But it wasn't a bed of roses. It wasn't a prosperity gospel. I assure you, Paul was not as wealthy at this point sitting in prison that he was when he, when he accepted Christ. But I think he got a good deal. Second thing Paul traded for was grace. Paul traded for grace. Let's look at that in verse 2. It says, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. To the grace. Grace is an unearned, unmerited favor. There's a simple definition for that. But it goes beyond that. It's the absolute freeness of the loving kindness of God to men, finding its only motive in the bounty and the free heartedness of the giver, which is God, which simply says grace comes from God and it's just out of his goodwill and his loving kindness towards us. It's not because we've done anything to earn it. In fact, the book of Isaiah says what? It says that our best is as filthy rags to God. There's nothing we can do to deserve it. But because God loves us and wishes for us to be in a right relationship with him, he gives us grace. And Paul traded his life for grace. But it's more than just the, the uh, receiving it. Or it's more than just the embracing of the ideal of God's love for us. It's more than just receiving it. It's also giving it. 
giving God's grace. You said, what do you mean? Well, let's look at that passage one more time in verse two. It says, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, the key word, there's the stewardship. He, as a believer, as as a believer, he is giving us a stewardship of his grace. What does that mean? Well, think about it. It, Back in that time of the writing, what would happen is a landowner, a wealthy landowner would give parts of his uh, estate to his servants and they were to then take that and bring to, you know, manage it, bring back a profit for him. And there's parables about that. Y'all are familiar with those things and stuff like that. But there was a stewardship of that. Well, here's the same case. In Paul's life, God gave him a stewardship of grace. Manage this grace. Give it away. Make it profitable. Not financially, but make it profitable for, for God in the sense that we are sharing it with others. And we, too, have a stewardship of grace. I don't know if you've seen the movie Les Miserables, but spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to kind of tell you a little bit of the story, but it's an older, older story. If you haven't seen the player stuff, if you haven't seen it, that's too late. You're going to get a little bit of it now. But basically, it's a story of a man named Jean Valjean, and he's a hungry man, and he's destitute, and, and he, he doesn't have food, and he steals a loaf of bread, and he's caught. And he's imprisoned for stealing this loaf of bread. And then over a period of time, he tries to get out of prison, tries to break out and some other things. He ends up spending a total of 19 years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. Hard labor. And when he finally gets out, he's given an orange card that, that marks him as a convict. So now he can't get gainful employment. He can't do anything. And so he's, he's really struggling and he still has no place to stay and he has no, nothing to eat. And they send him to this pastor and they say, look, you need to go here to this pastor and see him. Maybe he can help you out. And he goes to him and, and the pastor brings him in and sits down and feeds him a hot meal and gives him a place to stay and gives him, you know, lets him, lets him bathe and, and a place to stay that night. And then in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean gets up and he takes the silver, the place settings, and he puts it in his bag and he leaves in a hurry because he sees a chance to have something of value. Well, he's well known as a convict, and so the police see him with the silver. They immediately locate, figure out whose it is. They bring him back to the pastor later that day and says, look, we have caught this man, and then all we need you to do with the silver, and we believe this to be yours, that he stole it, and all you need to do is let us know so, so we can arrest him, so we can press these charges on him. And the pastor looked at him, and he dropped his head and said, Sean, I am so disappointed in you. And he turns, he walks over, and he grabs the two candlesticks, the most precious pieces of silver he has. And he comes over, and he stuffs them in the bag. He says, you forgot these. Now go. That's grace. And Jean Valjean never got over that. He befriended a woman who had an illegitimate child who had to give the child up. And she, the child was being raised in a horrific situation. But in order to try to support her, she resulted to, to uh, having her teeth pulled and sold <laughs> and, and her hair cut and sold for that. And, and, and in prostitution and just living a miserable life. 
And she ended up eventually dying, but through this friendship that John Valjean was taking care of her and trying to help her, he, he learned of this child, and so he goes after her death to try to get the child. And, of course, these people were, were abusive, and, and there's this girl, and John tries to purchase her, and they say, oh, and they think he's trying to purchase her for all the wrong reasons. And they keep on saying, no, we couldn't sell her for that. Oh, no, we couldn't sell her for that. He ends up emptying and giving them everything he's got to purchase this girl to raise her as his own child. Jean Valjean never, ever got over the grace. It changed his life. Hmm. Paul never got over the grace. It changed his life. Why do we find it so hard to share the grace of God with other people. Something that has changed our lives, something that is giving us new life, something that has placed us in a right relationship with God. But yet it's so difficult to share it with other people. I mean, our culture has said we just can't do it because faith is a private thing. Folks, faith is not a private thing. It's never a private thing. Faith is a personal thing. But it was never meant to be private. God wants us to share it. He has given us a stewardship of grace. We must embrace it. We must receive it. We must give it. I got a short video I want to share with you. A guy named Penn Gillette. He's a well-known magician. Some of you will know who he is. He's a very outspoken atheist. And this is what he has to say about believers sharing or rather not sharing about what we believe. Man, the question he asks is just, uh, it's frightening. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that and not tell them? Lord, give us power. Give us power to have the stewardship of grace and to share it with others. We must embrace it. We must receive it. We must give it. The last thing I want to share with you that Paul, I believe, traded his life for is uh, found in, in the next passage there, verse 3, Ephesians 3, 3. And that's for the mystery of the gospel. Let's read this. It says, let's start with verse 2. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by the revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. Man, everybody likes a good mystery. Everybody likes to do that. Well, God, or Paul, should I say, traded his life for the mystery. The mystery of the gospel. I want to share with you several other passages. You don't need to turn there, but I'll read them. Uh, first is Ephesians 1.9. And it says that he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him or purposed in Christ. In the book of Colossians, let me see what I got here. Book of Colossians chapter 2 verses 2 and 3 it says this, that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then in Colossians 1, starting in verse 25. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, before now, the Gentiles had no chance. They had no opportunity. I mean, salvation came through the Jews, but now the mystery was the gospel was open. And as Gentiles, folks, we can receive Christ. The mystery. Paul gave his life for the mystery of the gospel. Christ in you, the hope of of glory. I'll share with you a short illustration that kind of uh, kind of illustrates this a little bit. It's kind of childish in some respects, but uh, I kind of want to share with you, and that's just that I have this this glove right here that's kind of a pretty pretty cool thing because this glove can do some special tricks. I can put it right there on that Bible, and I can just tell it to pick the Bible up, and it'll do it. So I can just go ahead and say, "Go ahead." Pick up the Bible. Of course, it didn't do it, did it? It's kind of childish. I don't know what happened there. So maybe I just put it in the wrong place. I don't know. Let me set it over this direction. Come over here. I can say, go ahead, glove. Pick up the Bible. It still hasn't done it. There's no power. There's nothing there. But it's an amazing thing when you think about Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's a mystery there. Because now the glove is able to pick up the word. Now you say, boy, that's childish, right? That's simple. But it's the truth. See, folks, the gospel and living out the Christ life is not so complicated that we can't do it. It's just giving an understanding of what's really going on. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Just like the glove. But now, Christ in you empowers us to become a vessel that God uses in great ways. Paul traded his life to be used by God. He traded his life to, for the mystery of the gospel. So where do we go from here? What do we do with this? How do we bring this to a close? I think i got three challenges that I'd like to share with you. They're easily stated but they're not easy to live out. Here they are. Number one, be Christ intoxicated. Be consumed by Christ. Be so consumed by Christ that it affects the way you think, that it affects the way you view other people, that it affects the way you act, it affects the way you talk. Be Christ intoxicated. Let him be your everything in life. Second, be a trafficker of God's grace. Be a steward of God's grace. 
In other words, as you have embraced it and you have received it, give it, share it. What better year than to say, oh God, use me in 2012 to be a steward of your grace. Help me share it with somebody. Help me share it with somebody today. And thirdly, be a messenger of the mystery. Be a messenger of the mystery of the gospel. You know, these things don't just happen, folks. We have to get honest with God. And we really have to take a look at things and say, okay, God, I need you to do a work in my life so that I can accomplish these things, to be Christ intoxicated, to be a trafficker of your grace, Lord, to be a messenger of your mystery, the mystery of the gospel. God, I need you to work in my life. And in just a couple moments, we're going to have some pastors down front. And maybe you're struggling with a decision. Here it is, the beginning of the year, and you're just saying, oh, God, I, I want you to do something in my life, and I want to start my year off right. Maybe you need to come forward and just pray and ask God to do a work. Maybe you don't have an understanding of this mystery or this grace. Maybe you've, maybe you've, you've heard about it and you know it's there, but boy, you've never, ever received it. It's never changed your life. Maybe you've never traded your life for Christ. And you can do that. You can come and you can talk to one of our pastors and, and they'll share with you how you can do that. Whatever the case is, Lord, don't let the Holy Spirit speak to you. And you sit back and say, oh, no, Lord, be honest with God. Be honest with him. We're going to pray now Then after that we'll stand and the music will play. And I welcome you to come forward. Okay, let's pray together. God, we, I thank you. I, I thank you for your love. Lord, I thank you for, for Christ who gave it all for us on the cross. God, I thank you that you loved us so much that you provided a way for us to have a right relationship with you. And Lord, as we start this year off, God, help us to start it off right. God, I pray that, that we will make decisions here in the next few minutes, Lord, that will guide the direction of our lives from here on out. Lord, I pray that you would make your will very clear to each person as you speak to each one of us. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit. Move freely among us now. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.